All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And uh, we're going to drop anchor in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul has been circling the same theme since chapter 8. And that theme is, is it okay for Christians to eat a food that's been devoted to another deity, food that's been placed before an, an idol? And Paul has two answers to this question. He has a rational answer and a relational answer. And his rational answer is, Idols have no meaning for the Christian. Uh, They're just stone or wood or precious metal. But other than that, they're only a physical object. There's no uh, spiritual energy to them. And also, food is food. So if you have the opportunity to, to have a nice meal, go ahead and enjoy it. Don't worry about it. The idol is nothing. That's the rational answer, and it's easy to to see it. The relational answer is, look, some Christians are convinced that food set before an idol is contaminated. And take their concerns seriously, and for their sake, don't offend them by buying meat in the marketplace that's been offered to an idol. Or if you're told, well, this meat that I'm serving was offered to an idol, don't eat it abstain. And, and he's saying that we do this for the sake of the conscience of others, even though we feel like we have freedom. Uh, and at times, um, love acts contrary to our rights and to reason. In fact, I wonder why Paul spends so much time on this subject the subject which we have to wrestle with to find any relevance in it for us today. And yet, uh, it was an obvious concern to uh, the Corinthians. And, And I suspect that he anticipated a negative reaction from them. What, you're you're telling me I can't eat meat just because it's gonna bother someone else? He knew the Corinthians. He knew that they were intelligent, that they had been lectured to by philosophers and and other preachers like himself. Uh, He knew that they loved to argue. There are always arguments going on among them. In fact, the first half of this letter is about disputes that they were having over controversies in their own community with other Christians. So... He knew how difficult it would be for them, living in this very hedonistic society, this very self-centered society, it would be difficult for them to put others first, to say, well, I'm not going to do this for the sake of someone else. And, and I can hear the, a, a Corinthian saying, 
Um, it, it doesn't make sense for those other Christians to be worried about idols. An idol isn't anything. Maybe they should just grow up. So he labored to help them come to a new perspective, a new awareness. And it really is a spiritual awareness. And he doesn't expect them just to get it by the logic of his argument. There's that. But he knows that God has to do something in them in order to give them this insight that does not come by any natural means. And he's already told us that he is a steward of the mysteries of God. He's all about helping people open their minds to, to, to the unknown. And that's why we call this a primer in things unseen. In this last stage of this particular argument, he shows them that the threat of, of idols is a real threat, that, that there is reason to be concerned. Uh, but he begins in verses 1 through 5 with a history lesson. He goes back to Israel in the wilderness. And there are specific features of the story that he highlights, because he wants to make a point. First of all, the cohesiveness of their experience. He says that they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. So in five verses, five times, he uses the word all. They're all in the same boat, traveling together through the wilderness. They all have the same experience there. But the last point he makes is that God was displeased with most of them, so they never reached their goal. God swore his wrath. They would not enter his rest, and so they never entered the promised land. It's almost an understatement to say most of them died in the wilderness when a whole generation, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. It was that following generation that went into the land. So, um, so Paul brings this, this up to them. And um, he, he lists the things that, that they did that had displeased God. And way up close to the top of the list is idolatry. So he, he's hitting that theme already. Next, in uh, verses 6 through 11, Paul explains that they are examples for us. And he makes it clear that he's using them as examples because he starts this unit of thought in verse 6 with uh, examples. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. Then in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. Right? So, so the thought is enveloped in, uh, in this significant theme. He tells the Corinthians to avoid the mistakes that the Israelites had made. And, and then he provides them that list. Do not be idolaters. In verses 12 and 13, he makes two specific applications. Uh, in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you know something, 
You don't know it yet as you ought to know it. He's already said this. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Then he demonstrates that there is a real problem with food that's been devoted to idols. And it has to do with how people at that time understood a ritual meal. That a ritual meal formed bonds. And the first bond was with the God that was being honored in the ritual meal. The second bond was those who shared that meal together. And this is also in Israel's worship. The, the uh, peace offering or the, the sacrifice of fellowship that, that these bonds are formed. And so, um, uh, and so he's telling them that this is what's happening uh, in the temple of the other God. And this is why we need to be wary of eating food offered to idols. He says um, in verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So there is um, maybe, in some instances, a spiritual entity involved in idolatry, only it's not a god. It's a demon. And he compares what happens when people celebrate a meal like this and when Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever your tradition calls it, um, that Christians are bonded with Jesus in partaking of the bread. They are participants in his body. In partaking of the cup, they are participants in his blood. Um, and now we see why he mentioned the food and drink that Israel all received in the wilderness. He was setting this up. They were all bound together by their common experience. They all had the spiritual food and the spiritual uh, drink. And here, uh, in our faith, we're all bound by the food and drink of the Lord's Supper. And he says... Because we're here, I wouldn't want you having this type of communion with pagan gods or with demons. At this point, uh, Paul returns to a statement that he made earlier. This is in verses 23 through 30. Um, and it's that familiar slogan, all things are lawful. Uh, rather catchy rhythm to it. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Earlier, when he referred to the slogan in chapter 6, verse 12, 
he added the two words, for me. All things are lawful for me. And he says this twice. Here, he just says, all things are lawful. And he says it twice. You see, earlier he was talking about the, the individual and the choices that an individual makes. And here's what's good for me. Here's what I need to remember. And all things may be lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Uh, not all, uh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things will get me where I want to go. And here it's just all things are lawful because a community, it's, he doesn't single himself out. It's the whole community. Yeah, all things are lawful for us, but not all things build us up, edify us. <sighs> He's already said that the know-it-alls, uh, their knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he goes back to that idea of building up. Not all things do that. Love does that. But just knowing what I know about idols being nothingness, and uh, that's not, that's not enough to build people up, to build the community up. And this is what we're looking for. Um, so how does that apply in this context? He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You're not just in this for yourself. You're in it for others. Um, he, in Romans chapter 14, a very similar situation. He says, for none of us lives to himself or dies to himself. But if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we are the Lord's. So I can't just go through life saying, well, what works for me, and if, if someone doesn't like that, if that bothers someone else, if that offends someone else, forget them. Um, I just have to watch out for myself. That's not Christian. Th it's American thinking. It's definitely, you know, John Wayne thinking, but it's not Christian thinking. Um, so he suggests a way to handle this problem if it comes up, that if you're in someone's home, if it's a, a reception of some kind, a, a feast of some kind, and meat is served, and someone says, oh, by the way, that was offered to an idol this morning. Uh, he says, okay, here's what you do if that comes up. Here's how you handle that. So he gets really practical there. Uh, he ends this argument in, uh, in verse 31 through 33 uh, with a synopsis of our way of life. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And he, uh, he told us about his methodology last week in uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Okay, now let's get back to our purpose for being in 1 Corinthians. Paul was graced with extraordinary spiritual insight. He de described himself as an administrator of the mysteries of God. So we've been using him as a guide to spiritual insight. How can I enlarge my capacity to intuit 
the word of God, the truth, the revelation of God, the presence of God? How can I increase my capacity to be aware of God? More aware. You know, he is here right now. Doesn't do me any good if I'm not aware of that. Doesn't change anything I do if I'm not aware of that. But what if I am aware of that? And what if I'm aware of that more consistently? Or what if it comes to me especially when I need it? When the grandchild needs discipline and the last thing that I am prepared to do is discipline a grandchild. Um, I am so much readier to forgive and forget, to, to let it slide. But what if in that moment I have an awareness of God and that gives me an extraordinary wisdom as to hand, how to handle this situation? There are so many times that if I were suddenly fully aware of God, I would do so much better than what I do in my own judgment and, and intelligence. So Paul can be a spiritual guide as to how we can become more aware of God more continuously because he was someone who pretty much lived that. What do we learn from Paul in this chapter? Well, when Paul read the scriptures, his focused attention was flexible. At times, Paul's focus was sharp, analytical, and detail-oriented. He could really connect the thoughts of scripture well. He could really dig out the meaning of an Old Testament text. His letter to the Romans reveals his logical skills of interpretation. In fact, it's really possible that he had read or was aware of the teaching of Quintilian on how to interpret uh, documents because he definitely uses some of the methodology Quintilian talks about in his six or seven volume work that was uh, still extant at the time. So he could, he could be um, a very gifted interpreter of scripture. But at other times, Paul was able to focus his attention behind the words on the scroll. And his interpretation there is not so much logical as it is mystical. At the beginning of this chapter, he tells us that Israel was baptized underneath the cloud, which was God's presence, and in the sea, which was the Red Sea that they passed through. He says this was a baptism into Moses, the ministry of Moses. In a similar way, the disciples of John the Baptist were baptized into John. And in a similar way, Christians are baptized into Jesus Christ. Um, but Paul says that they were baptized. Well, there's nothing in the book of Exodus that says anything about baptism. It's not even hinted at there. He also says that they ate spiritual food. Well, yeah, they had the manna, 
Uh, that seems like uh, a miracle. And they also drank spiritual drink. Um, water flowed from a rock when Moses hit it with his staff. That too was a miracle. So we could say, I guess, that that was spiritual. Uh, but normally we wouldn't. We'd say, well, yeah, it's miraculous, but it's physical too. I mean, you know, water's flowing from a rock. Uh, this, this strange frost is on the desert floor every morning. and We can collect it and grind it up and make little cupcakes out of it. Um, but um, the spiritual food and the spiritual drink connects us to the Lord's Supper. But he's not just concentrating on the meaning of a text. He is listening to God's spirit speak to him through the text and enlighten him to something that our natural eyes would not normally see. Yeah, I never got that before when I read that passage. How come I never got that? Well, it's because it's not obvious. It's not logical. It's not rational. It's not the way you usually go about interpreting a passage. But he's able to read it this way because this is how the Spirit of God is speaking it to him. And, and he's make, the Spirit's making him aware of this other way of seeing this. It is, it is listening for God's Spirit to speak through these words on the page. You know, um, the Christian church in the first century, second century, third century, attempted to do this, to read the Bible in this same way. But instead of relying on the Spirit to open up their eyes, they tried to find meanings with their rational mind. Well, this means more than what it says, because Paul could always see the extra meaning. So instead of relying on the Spirit, which is really not that easy, you know, it's not like a dictionary where I can pick it up and look up a word, or an encyclopedia, or an encyclopedia of spiritual potentials in the Old Testament. Um, to depend on the Holy Spirit, you're trusting someone who for our rational minds and our physical senses, is not even here. That's what our bodies are telling us. But the Spirit's not here. Do you see him? Do you hear him? Do you feel him? So instead of depending on the Holy Spirit, they used their minds and they came up with allegories. And um, some of those allegories uh, would make you laugh really, to read them. And, and the, these were significant scholars and theologians who were doing this. Um, but their allegories reveal not so much the secret message of the text, but the creativity of the interpreter who's coming up with the allegories. Um, oh, gosh, I shouldn't say this. I have a friend. Um, uh, I won't mention John Corson's name. But... Um, <laughs> but He's made a ministry out of allegorizing the Old Testament. And he's really good at it. He's very creative. And some of his, his allegories, you just go, wow, that, that's amazing how that connects or how that can illustrate. And I told him one time, I said, John, you need to write a commentary. 
and you should title it John Corson's Fanciful Insights into the Word of God. Because basically that's how I see it. Uh, after uh, he, he was down here staying with us for a while, and he spoke at Calvary Chapel in Encinitas. So I rode down there with him to hear him speak. And he did this great thing with, with King David and the Ark of the Covenant and had all these parallels to the New Testament. And, uh, and afterwards, we're writing home. I told him, yeah, I, I, you know, I enjoyed that. You know, I thought that was really interesting. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, God blessed. And um, I said, but, you know, I can see a whole different allegory there. And I spun out what had occurred to me. And he said, oh, that's good. <laughs> like, I'll use that one, too. It's like, it's like I, I said, you can make anything out of you know, doing this. It's not, you know. Anyway, um, what about the spiritual reading of Scripture? What about, what about listening to the Holy Spirit? It wasn't really the theologians of the church who finally rediscovered it. It was a monk in the 12th century, uh, uh, Gigo, G-U-I-G-O, Gigo II. And uh, here's what he wrote about it. When I was hard at work one day, thinking on the spiritual work needful for God's servants, four such spiritual works came to my mind, these being reading, Meditation, prayer, contemplation. This is the latter for those in monasteries and for others in the world who are God's lovers, by means of which they can climb from earth to heaven. It is a marvelously tall ladder, but with just four rungs, the one standing on the ground, the other thrilling into the clouds and showing the climber heavenly secrets. Now that sounds like what I've been saying about Paul, right? That, um, that he could see in the scripture these mysteries, these heavenly secrets, and share them with others. And this monk is saying, but anyone who loves God can do this. And there, there's just four rungs. The reading, the lectio, the, the uh, meditation, meditatio, the prayer, the oratio, and the contemplation, contemplatio, I think. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know it when I'm making up words. <laughs> this is our Wednesday Zoom meetings, our Lectio Divina. When we share, as we read the scripture again, we read the same passage generally a, a shorter passage, we read it three times. When we read it together and sit and listen, we get words and phrases that oftentimes have nothing to do with the context of the passage. But the Holy Spirit has taken something in that passage that's for us and hooked something in our hearts. And there's a connect between that word now inspired for us and something in our heart that needs to be addressed. Maybe it's not the thing we want God to talk about us, talk to us about. Maybe it's not the thing 
that we even thought was an issue. But the Holy Spirit brings it up. And sometimes to say, see, everything's all right. What you're going through is normal. Sometimes to say, look, you've been missing something. At the end of our Lectio Divina, we share the gift we received that night or the invitation from Jesus that we received or the challenge. We are trying to practice this awareness of the Spirit of God speaking to us through the Word of God in very personal ways. And it is remarkable how often what speaks to one person speaks to several of us or even all of us. Now, when we read like this, we're not looking intensely for the meaning of every word. We're not meditating on every single word. Instead, we want our reading to be relaxed, reverent, and receptive. I'm not going in here like a miner digging for gold. I'm sitting here in a poppy field receiving the beauty of what's before me. What is the Spirit of God saying to me in this moment? Like Paul, we want what is spiritual behind the text to come in front of it and speak to us. Think of it like this. The Christian has two modes of experiencing life. The one is with our psychological self, all the programming of our past experience, parents, teachers, friends, culture. That's how our psychological self has developed. We typically think that's who I am. The psychological self is not really well-defined. And if someone says, well, who are you? And the first thing you say is, well, my profession is, then you obviously don't know who you are. And the psychological self does not really know who it is. The other mode of our experience is our spiritual self. The psychological self is caught up in thoughts and emotions. It lives in thoughts and emotions. It's thinking all the time. It's feeling all the time. The spiritual self observes thoughts and emotions and does so without judgment and without getting trapped in them. The spiritual self is not defined by thoughts or feelings. In Romans, Paul said, for those who live according to the flesh, and I'll say the uh, psychological self, set their minds on the things of the psychological self. But those who live according to the spiritual self set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the psychological self is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The psychological self is, knowing, is going nowhere except the grave. The spiritual self is life and peace now and for all eternity. In our Lectio Divina, we want to read the scripture in the spirit self mode. 
That's how we want to experience the scriptures. Observing what's brought to our attention. The way we observe our thoughts, but don't get into them. Observe our emotions, but don't get ruled by them. It's the spiritual self, the aware self. Uh, am I making sense? No, I'm not. If I were, we wouldn't be here. It's all mystery. It's, it's, it's all hidden from us. Um, I don't even know what I mean. Um, okay, I want to make brief comments. You know I'm not good at brief, but I want to make brief comments on several other verses. Uh, Verse 13, where he talks about there's no temptation that comes to you except what's common to everybody. And when it comes, God is there for you. He's faithful. And he provides a way for you to escape it while enduring it. Okay? So um, temptations, by the way, can refer to any hardship. It's not just a, a seduction to sin. Temptation is anything that goes wrong, anything that hurts, uh, any slight that you've suffered from someone else. And that is a test. Every time something goes wrong, every, if we, when we hit traffic and we're already late for our doctor's appointment, that's a test. And... and when we feel, you know, the anxiety rising, that can be a reminder. I got to make a choice right now to either be anxious or to take a deep breath and move into my spiritual self and just be aware that this is traffic and that I'm here and God is here, his spirit is with me and I'll just stay in the rhythm of the spirit breathing in and out, rather than worry about the stop and go of the traffic. I'll be here, I'll be driving, you know, just as always. I'll have my wits about me, but I'll also have the peace of being in this, this other mode. The escape, Paul says, is not an escape out of our situation, but escape an escape within it. That doesn't sound like an escape to me. Um, however, I, I know what it means. That, and Paul knew what it meant because uh, towards the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, I have suffered for the longest time this thorn in my flesh, this hardship, this very, very painful infirmity. And I've prayed to God for three, on three different occasions I can't do it anymore. Take this from me. And each time he has said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you can take it because my grace will see you through that, this. And then he says, now I realize that in my weakness, God perfects his strength. That where I'm weak, God is strong. And things work out anyway. They go even better because now it's God's power and not mine. But you know what a lesson. So... So he found his way of escape. His escape was to God in his trials. Now, I bring this up because of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, yes, the author of Lord of the Rings. And, um, 
he answered critics who claimed that fairy stories were escapist literature. And he says, escape is one of the main functions of fairy stories. And what critics describe as real life is something we should want to escape from once in a while. He asks, why should a man be scorned if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls. The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. In using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word. And what is more, they are confusing the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. They're confusing the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. And, and Tolkien would say, we're not deserters. We, we are escape artists, and our art is fairy tale. though he also believed strongly that the world outside our prison is the dimension of God, and we know it's there even though we're within these prison walls, uh, but it ha it's not less real for us not being out there seeing it. Uh, but why would, we, why would we not want to escape this dreary situation. And, and Paul says we find that escape to God and in God. Our, our goal is to find the escape and not desert. In verse 16, he talks about our, partition, our participation in the cup, uh, representing Jesus' blood and the bread representing his body, that we have a participation in this. And he uses the Greek word koinonia, uh, a word that's impossible to translate by one English word because it means too much. Uh, its root word is common. In fact, uh, there's a period of history in which the Greek language that was used at that time is called the Koine Greek. It followed the classical period of you know, the, uh, the philosophers of Greece and their excellent use of language to a more homey style of communication, the common Greek, the Koine Greek. But koinonia can be translated partnership, uh, participation as it is here, um, community, communion, communication. It represents an intimate connection with Jesus and the Father, as in 1 John chapter 1, but also with each other. And Paul will use it in, in these ways also. With that in mind, verse 23, once again, uh, the familiar slogan with its catchy rhythm, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And um, here it has to do with what we do for others, the sacrifices we make for others, the services that we provide to others. 
even the friction that we sometimes feel with others in our Christian community, all are necessary for our spiritual development. We're in this together. We're all in this partnership. We all share another meaning of koinonia. We, we all share a life together in Christ. And these things, these dynamics of our the social construct in which we live uh, are significant. Um, we learn through what we discover together. And sometimes apologies and forgiveness and making up does more to forge a strong relationship and reveals more about how to go through life successfully than not ever having any problems with anyone. Okay, the the last verse I want to comment on is verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, There's a writer, and I'm not going to say his name because I'm going to criticize what he's written. Uh, But there's a writer who said that to be holy in all manner of conduct, as Paul, or pardon me, Peter tells his readers they need to do, to be holy in all manner of conduct applies to recreational activity and relaxation as well. It applies to purchases and even to our eating habits. And he quotes from Corinthians here. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do my eating habits and the resultant weight gain or loss glorify God? Does my every activity adorn the gospel and present an appealing advertisement for the kingdom of God? And I thought, an appealing advertisement for the kingdom of God? How appealing is the cross? You know, um, anyway... When, when you get this kind of application of scripture, the kind that leaves you feeling judged, condemned, and guilty, it produces Christian Pharisees, where we all become hypocrites and pretend as much as we can around others that we're doing just fine, and we're not guilty of any of these horrid crimes. I had a friend who was a firefighter, and another mutual friend was in the same department. And he says, you know, this guy really bugs me because we're all sitting around eating ding-dongs and watching television until the captain drives up. And then this one guy jumps up, he grabs a broom, and he starts sweeping like, you know, he is the one who's, who's washing the fire engine. He's the one who's keeping the place neat. Um, he, and all the other guys would look at him, roll their eyes, and knew he was just doing it for show. And that's what we all have to do if we live in the environment where what I eat has to glorify God. Every bite I take has to glorify God. That's not what is meant here. Paul is saying basically regardless of what you eat or drink, 
whatever you do, whether plowing or preaching, be there for God. Glorify God in it. And if you enjoy a luxuriant, decadent, thick piece of cheesecake, eat it thankfully and, you know, glorify God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But if we turn everything into do's and don'ts, we lose the sense of gift. That every moment is a gift. Everything we eat is a gift. Everything we do is a gift. And glorify God in it. Only if something I am doing is so wrong, it cannot possibly glorify God, should I have second thoughts about doing it. We have inherited a flawed way of reading the Bible. We come away from it pious and judgmental rather than gracious and merciful. We come away with rules to keep, uh, with rules to keep us moral rather than invitations to be relational. We come away from it burdened with guilt rather than blessed with forgiveness. You know, guilt is gravity. It drags you down. Grace is anti-gravity. It gives you wings. We need to learn how to read all over again so that we hear scripture as it comes from the lips of Jesus And we see through new eyes that are enlightened by God's spirit. And if we learn to read again in this new way, then we will experience the joy of the scripture. We'll find out why Jeremiah said, your words were found and I did eat them. And they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. We'll also discover the power of the scriptures, to to sustain our faith and to make us better persons. Would you stand with me, please? I I have to love you. I would not come here every week to hear me. (laughs) But then, you know, I live with me all the time and it gets kind of frustrating, but uh, you're so patient and May the Lord God bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.